Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I am in Toronto, about to start shooting a limited series up there, a city that I only knew because of my ex-wife. And I get an email from my ex-wife that says, I'm filing for divorce. In that moment, I felt the entire world collapsing on me because I couldn't even do that right. My career wasn't what I wanted it to be. My family life was horrible. My, you know, all these things, but now I've failed this and everyone's going to know and everyone's going to judge me. And I was rapidly falling apart. Could not stop crying, weeping, weeping, weeping. I mean, and, and felt no love for myself at all. And didn't think I was ever going to come out of it. And so, yeah, I walked to the balcony. I was staying in this like hotel apartment kind of situation up on the 14th floor or something. And I walked to the balcony and I looked down. I don't know if you've ever cried so hard that the tears don't even move out of your eyes fast enough. Like you're almost like you're looking through water. And I'm looking down through this blurry, these blurry eyes. And I'm just looking down at all these cars that are parked down there. And I think to myself, is this far enough to die? Like, am I high enough where I would actually die? Or if I jump right now, is there a chance that I live, but I'm like paralyzed? Hello, friends, and welcome back to an extra special episode of The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who have taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path their purpose or what they've identified with as their mission. And in doing so, they have been able to positively impact and or inspire the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who have benefited directly from their work. And today I'm in conversation with Shazam. Do you know who I mean by Shazam? Zachary Levi is the actor who plays the lead role in the Shazam action hero franchise. He also played NFL quarterback Kurt Warner in the biographical sports drama American Underdog, which I saw. But I'm less interested in talking to Zachary about his movie roles and more interested in hearing his fascinating backstory and particularly what led to his advocacy for mental health awareness, which also resulted in the publication of his book, Radical Love. As always, we are going to hear about how Zachary's backstory shaped his path and why he's become so passionate about using his massive platform to bring more awareness and attention to mental health and how that led to his ambassadorship with a nonprofit organization called Active Minds, which is focused on providing mental health services on college campuses across the country. Zachary will also share with us how he was able to use meditation, prayer, and therapy to move past his own suicidal ideations and mental health challenges, 
and his dissatisfaction with the dehumanization that he witnessed while navigating the Hollywood entertainment scene over the years. And what I enjoyed the most about speaking with Zachary on this episode was how much of an open book he was. It always makes for a better interview when the guest is willing to go there and talk about their darker moments along their journey. And Zachary definitely went there in this conversation. So as a fan of this show, I know you'll also appreciate his generosity. And I'm just so honored and excited to now share this conversation with you. So without further ado, let's dive into the life and work of Mr. Zachary Levi. You and I share a lot, just the way we were brought up. My mom was nothing like your mom, (laughs) but just growing up with siblings and, well, my mom was a little bit like your mom, but I was, it's funny. I was reading the book and I was waiting for like the redemption moment with your mom where everything turns around. And it was like that movie Requiem for a Dream. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And then it ends and it's like, wow, this is crazy. I mean, I think, you know, ultimately with my mom, at least in the way that I see it, I think that my relationship with her found redemption in therapy, in being able to recognize that she was, in fact, you know, a product of her environment, like we are all products of our environment. And in order for you to move forward in life, you have to be willing and able to accept yourself and forgive yourself. And the only way to do that is to recognize that you're doing your best. And that's what any psychiatrist, any therapist, anybody will tell you, hey, you need to stop beating yourself up, Zach. You're doing your best. You're doing your best. But in order to fully embrace that and accept that on a logical level, that means everyone is. I mean, everyone is, you know, because I, I how can how can I apply that to myself and not apply that to literally everyone else? And it's a very difficult thing. And it's a thing I keep, you know, through the book. I try to talk about it a, a lot. It's, you know, every time I do an interview or a podcast, it's the thing I probably thump on the hardest. It's like we have got to be willing to forgive and love, which doesn't mean allowing people to just keep, you know, barreling into our lives and beating us up or whatever. Boundaries are a beautiful thing. But recognizing that all of our abusers are not these evil Machiavellians twisting their mustache, can't wait to get in there and hurt you type of people. They're just not. They're fucked up and they're broken and they're hurting and they're lost and whatever they are. And it doesn't excuse any of it, but it explains all of it. And we need to be more interested in the why we don't, nobody gives a fuck about the why nobody, nobody, it's, it's just so, it's so much easier for us to just say bad person, evil person, monster, whatever, however, you know, and because that also makes us feel better about ourselves. And, you know, there's, there's so many things that are all wrapped up in that, but the redemption with my mom really was coming to terms with the fact that she was just a little girl in there that was hurt and scared and lost and broken and had no real way of being able to healthfully communicate the pain that she was in. And so that's why it all manifested in the way that it did. And it didn't, wasn't personal. It's really easy to think that, that your parents or, or whomever doesn't love you when they treat you in the ways that my mom treated me or my sisters until you recognize that, no, they actually, actually did love me. How weird and crazy is that, that even somebody who loves me so much would treat me the way that she does. And, but she did because she didn't understand how else to behave. She was that messed up. So the redemption unfortunately didn't come in her lifetime, but I believe that she is now 
with God, source energy, however you want to break that down and possibly even, even living another life now. I, I don't know. I don't know how all these things work, but, but I, I believe that there's redemption in all of it. And I think that her not being stuck in this particular life and this particular body that she was in and the, and the abuse and the trauma that she suffered, that is her freedom. And then also freedom for all of us from that abusive behavior. So, yeah, it is sad. I mean, Amanda, for, for so many years, I really did believe. I thought me cutting off relationship with my mom would have been enough. And it wasn't. And then I thought, well, if enough people cut off relationship with my mom, then that'll be enough. And it wasn't. And, you know, maybe like I say in the book, you know, maybe, maybe had had my aunt pressed charges and she actually went to jail. Maybe, maybe that would have been enough and maybe not, you know, maybe she'd have come out of there and just been more hardened and more pissed off. And, but that was the thing I always hoped for. I always dreamed and believed that there'd be a day where there would be a great reckoning on her part and a reconciliation and this awakening where she would yeah. be able to see the pain that her pain was causing and just come in humility and say, I'm so sorry. And in doing so, recognizing that everyone on the other side would have been so willing to say, I forgive you and I love you. But when you're, when you're, when you're spinning in that darkness, as my mom was, and along with that, I'm sure all of the shame that she felt and that she couldn't get herself out of, then, you know, you just, you're just all just down, 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 down. But I'm grateful that my own feelings and thoughts about my mom have been redeemed. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day. I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. That was the arc that was there, was that you transformed in the way that you saw it and dealt with it, especially at the end. Let's take it back to the early days because I want the audience, people who are not familiar with your story, sure, yeah. just to understand what we're talking about. 
And on your Instagram profile photo, you have a picture of yourself as a young person. How old were you there? I feel like that was probably like fourth or fifth grade. So I don't know, nine or 10 or something like that. Were you in Seattle at that point or were you still in Ventura? I don't remember. <laughs> I, don't remember. Well, I, I know. So I was in Ventura up until fourth grade. And then we moved to Olympia, Washington first. Got so it. we were there for a year and I was in fifth grade in, in Olympia. And then sixth, seventh and eighth grade, I was in the Seattle area. So in that photo, though, I wasn't I'm pretty sure that was I was either fourth or fifth grade. So it was either Vent, last of Ventura or, or in Olympia. So this was the beginning of the dark years for you in school. Well, actually, it was the last of the light. Uh, it, it was okay. the last of the light years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even though the seasonal depression was going to start to kind of kick on as we moved up to the Northwest, because that was a huge part of it. You know, this kid growing up in sunny Southern California, moving to the Pacific Northwest and all that gray and all that rain and all that everything. I mean, that's that's tough even if you grow up in it, but it's really tough if you've not. But at least in Olympia, Olympia was odd, though, because, you know, I was I was up there, but I was still in elementary school, elementary school. It's not until you get into middle school where everybody's a real asshole, you know, like because yeah. all those kids, because now you're now you're breaking, you know, in, in, in all through elementary school, you're still like in a homeroom. You're still in like a class. You have your friends in your class. All of a sudden you go to junior high, middle school. And now you're, you know, you have periods and you're going from this class to that class and you've got lockers and you got the whole and middle school kids are just trying to emulate high school kids who are just trying to emulate college kids who are just trying to emulate whoever they think the coolest person out there is. And so it's this weird trickle down effect. And it's almost like, you know, they tell you with poisonous things like for snakes, for example, it's not the adult snakes that you have to worry about so much as it's the young snakes that you have to worry about because the young snakes, when they bite, you don't know how much venom to pump into you or not. They just bite and they just pump, 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 pump. And that's what middle school is like to me. It's like these young little snakes that they want to bite like the adults do. They want to be cool and do, do the thing, but they have no idea just how toxic and poisonous their behavior is. And so they, <laughs> They just treat everyone so horribly, particularly if you're a new kid, particularly if you're nerdy and rollerblade and play video games and all the things that I did. Yeah. So in that photo, that was the last grade, I think, the last year where it was still optimistic, Zach, at least, you know, in that in that stretch. And then things, yeah, definitely started to become far darker and more depressed. Talk a little bit about your home life and. I guess those days with your mom and what was going on inside of the house. And then you were also feeling compelled to entertain the class, oftentimes without getting any kind of response. It was just crickets in the back of yeah. the class. So yeah, what was yeah, motivating yeah. you in those early days externally? And then what was going on internally inside of the house? I'll take it back even a little bit further to kind of set it up. My mom and dad met in the mid seventies, got married, had my older sister, 78, me, 1980, younger sister, uh, was born in 83. And I think around four years old is when I was really starting to put together the idea that I could intentionally make someone laugh. Around four years old, I think well, that's when any kid is kind of putting those things together. You start becoming cognizant of certain things. And then around four, I was, you know, I think we're all about emotionally intelligent enough to understand that a laughing, smiling person feels good on the inside. And 
once that all clicked for me, I couldn't stop. That was the greatest drug I had ever discovered. It was this amazing magic trick. I could make people feel good. And that made me feel good. And I just, I didn't want to ever do anything other than that. So you marry that with, I'm the middle child, the only boy. There's no real men around in my life because my mom and dad divorced, you know, kind of early on. And it was also, you know, my identity. It was my worth. It was, it was everything. It was all kind of wrapped up in that. So my desire to go and entertain, that was set then. So no matter how old I got and no matter where we moved to, I still was always going to try and find my identity and my worth in this world. And, you know, therefore to other people, be they adults or other kids or whatever, I was going to do that through making people laugh and entertaining and whatever. Little did I know through all of that time, just how much I was hurting or running from a lot of pain and using entertainment to cover that or, you know, work through it. And then, you know, my mom, my mom was this truly like, I mean, she could have been a fortune 500 CEO. She was so brilliant, genuinely brilliant and dynamic and charming and talented and beautiful and all of these things. But her trauma was so intense and was so deeply, deeply ingrained in who she was that all of those things became, you know, overshadowed by the pain that she was in and then how that would manifest and how, you know, she would treat others because of it. But it gets worse. It's that's one of the things you also learn in therapy that, you know, similar to like I talk about in the book, you know, mental health and dental health. It's if you don't take care of a cavity, what starts as that little cavity becomes a much, 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 much worse thing the longer it goes on. And with my mom's mental health, it was the same thing. My mom, when we were all little kids, my mom actually had purpose. She had these little kids to take care of. She could be mommy. We could go to her. We needed her. And I think that that filled that hole that gave her that purpose that she never really felt prior and certainly did not feel afterward once we became older children and didn't really need mommy in the same way anymore. And so as I was getting out of elementary school was right around the time where I was not needing mom as much. And, you know, my old older sister didn't, and my younger sister was now getting there. And so, so the timing of it all was just really kind of the perfect storm, right? As I'm getting into the hardest, you know, schooling years of my life, my mom's mental health was degrading even more quickly. And that was also because it was being exacerbated by her very, very, toxic relationship with my stepfather who came into the picture when I was about 10 years old. And what was life like in the house? I mean, life in the house was occasionally there, you know, was peace. Occasionally things were fine, but by and large, my mom and stepdad would fight and fight and fight and fight. And they would fight about, I mean, sometimes the most innocuous shit would be on a road trip and a car would drive by and one of them would comment on, Oh, I, you know, I haven't seen those new Broncos recently. And then the other would say that wasn't a Bronco. And then it wouldn't just be, uh, Oh, it wasn't a Bronco. I thought it was a, no, it was uh yes, it was a, you know, it just escalate and escalate sometimes again, over innocuous nonsense things, or sometimes over much more deeply rooted things within their own emotional kind of states and reality and My stepdad had a traumatic childhood growing up. My mom had a traumatic childhood growing up, and neither of them dealt with that trauma. So shocker, that's just going to keep following them. And they didn't understand how to healthily, lovingly speak to each other with grace, with patience, with kindness, with empathy, with any of those things. So me and my sisters were never seeing any of that modeled ever, not ever. To this day, 
it's one of those things where I can look back on my life and I can see just how short I used to be with my younger sister or how, how short she would be with me. She was my assistant for 15 years. The two of us basically had this really weird relationship where we were essentially kind of saving each other. You know, neither, we didn't have the parenting that we really needed. And so we both ended up becoming kind of each other's parents in a very strange way. But there was, you know, and some of that was really beautiful and wonderful and what a gift that God gave us and that we were able to be there for each other. But we both learned from our parents so well how to be so cutting, how to be so short, how to be so unsatisfied with result. Because if the result wasn't exactly perfect, as we had learned from our parents, then no, this is this is dumb. This is stupid. This is how could you not be doing this exactly the way that it needs to be? And And it's really sad. I think back on those on those years. Again, I've forgiven myself because I didn't know better, but it's incredible what you will pick up from your parents and you will not unlearn until you very specifically go out of your way to unlearn what that is. So fights in the household mainly were verbal. I mean, there wasn't really physical abuse in the house, but there were physicalities that, you know, would turn into sometimes I come home and my stepdad's clothes were all over the front lawn. And sometimes I come home and my mom's clothes are all over the front lawn. Sometimes I'd, you know, it'd be, we'd be in the house and they'd be yelling at each other so insanely. I mean, expletives left, right, and center saying the most horrible things to each other. I mean, you know, bringing up their ex spouses and why their kids don't love me. My stepdad would straight up look at my mom and say, this is why your kids don't like you. This is why your family doesn't like, I mean, all the, the amount of personal attacks that would come out. But again, this is a natural, this is a normal, unfortunately, it's a very normal thing for people who have not done the work to heal themselves. This is how these things go down. My stepdad would sometimes take out his aggression and his anger by just punching holes in walls. In later years, we had this hallway in the house that we were in in Ventura, and we just had pictures hung all the way down the hallway. They were just hung to in exactly the right spaces to just keep covering all the holes that were in the walls. And I look back on the way that my mom treated my stepdad and the amount of like unwinnable situations that she put him in and his inability to express his anger in any other way. And I, you know, I, in some ways totally understand he's not going to hit my mom. He can't hit my mom. That's physical abuse. That's you can't. So what do you do? Where do you go? How you, there's only so loud you can scream into a pillow. Like, where do you get this frustration and anger out? I don't know. You fucking, you attack a wall is what you do. In my mom's case, my mom would yell and scream. And then she would get in a car and say, I'm leaving. I'm going to go kill myself. You'll never see me again. And she would disappear. And, you know, when that started happening in the beginning, I would be freaking out. My mom's going to leave and she's going to die. And oh my God. Well, then, you know, she never, you know, eventually, inevitably she'd come back and then she'd do it again. And each time she'd do it, it became just a little less of a threat until finally she was just saying these words, but everyone was like, okay, go drive. You know, I know we know you're going to go drive somewhere. You're going to go blow off whatever steam you need to go blow off and you're going to come back. They both drank a lot. That didn't help anything, obviously. <laughs> they would just leave each other at restaurants. I mean, you know, they'd be having a dinner and then one of them would be like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm leaving. I'm leaving you. And then they'd take the car and they'd, and they'd take off. You know, these are just normal occurrences. So normal that you just become incredibly desensitized to it all. And you just can't wait to get out of this scenario and go create a family of your own. I wanted to get married so bad from such a young age. And I always thought it was because I just wanted to be a dad. And by the way, some of that was true. Some of it is because, yes, I do want to be a dad. I, I would love to have that whole family unit. 
had no idea that so much of the reason why I wanted to get out of that house and have a family of my own was because I didn't have anything that was healthy and loving on a constant level, you know? And again, I preface, but I'll circle it up again. My mom and my stepdad both, there were plenty of times throughout all of that, that they were good, decent, loving human beings who were, you know, they were, but they were doing their best and they had very limited toolboxes in the healthy category, in the healthy spouse parent category. They had very limited toolboxes. So, yeah. And, and so because of all that, you know, as a child, there's no safe space. I never felt like it was safe to go talk to my parents about anything that was going on in my life. The relentless bullying that I was going through in the Pacific Northwest. And even when I came back down to Ventura, I was in seventh grade and I was, I thought about killing myself in seventh grade. There was no way for me to process any of it. I didn't have anyone to process it with. And if I would go talk to my mom, as I talk about in the book, my mom would go and take something and then she would go and make a way bigger mess. She would go call the kids' parents and make a massive scene and And then I become the problem because not only has my mom now made this kid hate me more, his parents think I'm the problem because my mom would be so crazy in how she'd handle it. So now it's more of a problem. And then my mom would turn around and she'd blame me. She would blame us kids for bringing her into this as if this was our, so that, you know, then you just learn as a kid, well, I'm not going to talk to my parents about any of this stuff. If it's going to make it worse, and now I'm going to be the bad guy because I brought it to my parents' attention, then you don't talk about it. And then you just eat it and you eat it and you eat it and you eat it. And I, sometimes I I, honestly, I look back at my life. I'm like, I can't believe I lived through that. I can't believe I survived it because there were plenty of times where that darkness was real close, even as a kid. But fortunately, I don't know, as a kid, you're still a little bit more resilient. Your responsibilities, they haven't quite piled up as much. So you can lose yourself in your irresponsibility a little bit more and still have a little more optimism. But yeah, that's kind of what growing up in the house was like. Do you believe some people are predisposed to being depressed? And I know you're not a scientist and doctor, but I'm just I'm just curious, having lived with this your whole life and looking at how you grew up and now you got the maturity to look back. Do you think that played a role in it or do you think that you could have been in a different situation? And you probably still would have been experiencing the same level of sensitivity when it came to your emotional state. I firmly believe that different people are predisposed to different things. I mean, we know for a fact that genetically we're all composed differently. And quite literally, some of us might come out of the womb and you're genetically very physically different, even impaired in some ways, right? You might be born with Down syndrome, might be born perhaps with autism. You might be born with no hands. So there's all of that on the physical spectrum. That's all a real possibility. But I'm a firm believer in the mental and emotional spectrum that's affected by our DNA as well. And I, but I also believe that we can that we can change it. I mean, biblically, there's this concept, uh, you know, uh, in the Bible called sins of the father. I think we're seeing a lot of this thing. This is actually playing out. We are products of both nature and nurture. But the I think the really twisted irony in all of it is that. Yes, our, our nurture p- plays a huge part in ultimately, you know, who we are as human beings. But there have been many documented cases of people that were separated from their biological family as infants and grew up with entirely other families. 
or in fact, I don't know if you ever heard of this documentary, Three Perfect Strangers. It's a fascinating documentary. It's these triplets. They were separated when they were babies in the like late 50s, early 60s. They all grew up in completely different families. And then they all found each other randomly in the mid to late 70s or something like that. They were all like college age and they were the same people. They had completely different parents, completely different lives. And they were basically all the same guy. They all smoked the same cigarettes and drove the same car and liked the same types of girls, dressed in the same types of clothes. Now, granted, you could say, well, it was this type of era or whatever. So there was proclivities one way or the other. But still, they behaved in very similar ways. And I really do believe that. And we're seeing this more and more kind of show in science, in data, that our behaviors change our DNA. We can change the way our bodies literally behave in the, depending on how we think and how we feel that can start to rewrite that code. So yeah, I think that our code that we're born with can absolutely be predisposed to all manner of different emotional and mental malady or, or positive, you know, there's a lot of good that you can be born with as well. I mean, I know people that they are so resilient from, you know, when they come into the world, they have this amazing ability to not fall into depressions or anxieties or whatever it is, even if they did grow up with some wackadoo parents that didn't know what they were doing. I mean, they just have, there's something in them. There's an internal calm or confidence, I, you know? And I think that through a lot of what went down in my family, in my lineage, my mom struggled with it. Her dad struggled with it. And that's not even counting my dad's side of the family and whatever they might be struggling. Just even just counting my mom's side of our heritage it's there. You can see it manifest. And, and, and I don't think it's just that we keep teaching it. We keep nurturing it into the next generation. It's both. We're reinforcing what's already in the nature, which is really crazy. But again, amazing that we can reverse it. I really do think we can reverse it. So as far as I'm concerned, my particular journey, I think there was definitely some stuff that was, that was predisposed in there. I think that some of that was even outside of whatever my DNA is, I'm a firm believer in the spiritual realm. Like I, I believe that we're born with an essence, you know, I think there's some truth in the Zodiac. I think there's some truth in the Enneagram. I think there's some truth in the Myers-Briggs. I think there's some truth in numerology. I think, I think you can find a little truth in all that stuff. And I think a lot of it all points to a lot of similar places. None of it should be your one true compass that guides you through your life. I think that would be folly because I think all of them have their places where they ultimately break down. I don't, you know, to to read a daily horoscope and to go somehow like live your life by that. Ultimately, I think that becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're reading every day and it says, oh, stay away from the number 12 and the color blue, because, you know, all of a sudden now you're, you know, you're manifesting that shit, right? Because we can do that too. But I do think that I was born into this life, my soul, which is this in incredible hopefully eternal extension of God's own energy that has its own character and remembrance and all that. That's that all came into here, but then also my flesh itself had its own code in its DNA. And all of those things all kind of create who Zach is in this life. And I think I came with some of that baggage, no doubt about it. And the unfortunate nurturing of it all didn't help. You know, it did not help put me into a, a better place. I think my mom tried. Our birthdays were a week apart. She was also this big hearted Libra. She would always talk to me about it. I mean, she could see the big empathetic heart in me that I would 
cry for people I didn't even know. You know, we bonded over that kind of stuff. She knew it. She saw it. And she tried to protect it. And I know she tried to protect me in a lot of other ways too. But when you don't know the damage that you're doing, because you don't know, you don't know the damage that you're, that you're dealing with so that you don't know the damage that you're putting out into the world. You don't realize just how much you're exacerbating the problems that your kids might already be born with. And so, yes, I'm sorry. That's a very long, <laughs> that's a long winded answer to, yes, I do think on some level we are born with some of these things, but not damned by it. We can fight it. We can change it. We can beat it. We can reverse course. We can heal that. And, and how cool that it's, you're not just healing it for you. You're healing generational trauma, your line of family. And you can do it. You can, it can all stop with us, but you got to recognize that it's there first. In the pre-Frankenstein days, right, which is the first, I guess, major play you did, mm-hmm. what was your idea for success for yourself? I mean, you said you wanted to get married, you know, get out of that toxic situation and create a healthy situation. What else did the future look like for you? What were you envisioning for yourself? I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say, you know, at four, I realized I wanted to entertain people for the rest of my life. I didn't know what an actor was, but just a couple of years later, I figured it out. You know, around six, you become, again, you know, you're slowly becoming more aware of the world around you. And I think around six is when I was just cognizant enough to recognize, oh, that box that we watch all of these entertaining things on is a television. And the people that I see on this television that are pretending, they're pretending to be other people. That's acting. That's a job. Oh, I'm going to do that. That is absolutely what I'm going to do. In fact, I knew that I was supposed to. And I know a lot of people say these things and it doesn't always necessarily pan out for them. And that could have been my journey too. But I knew that I knew, man, like I, I like genuinely on like a spiritual level, even as a young kid, I understood that there was a concept of a God and that there, were, there was something bigger than us. And that I, and I believe that thing that was bigger than us also loved us and was very much involved in our lives and was incredibly powerful and had plans and you could be a part of those plans. And I felt very convicted. Like, and again, maybe it's just because when you're a kid, you absolutely believe everything because you have nothing but opt. There's no thing that has happened in your life to shut your optimism and your hope down like that. It's not until later when you run up against wall after wall and, and, you know, rejection after rejection that you start being like, okay, listen, hop along. Maybe you're not as smart as you think you are. Maybe you're not as talented as you think you are. And like I said, I know plenty of people who felt the same or seemingly they say they felt the same conviction that I felt. Maybe we didn't. Maybe the the conviction I felt was actually a whole other level of conviction. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't, I can't feel, I don't, I wasn't there when any of these other people felt whatever they felt. But at six years old, I knew that that was my destiny. And I did everything in my life to keep moving in that direction. It was, it just, I didn't really find theater, uh, you know, organized entertainment until I got into middle school because, you know, elementary schools don't really have that. And I was getting along just fine being, you know, yuck, yuck, ham it up, class clown, Zach. That was enough to scratch my itch and keep going and doing voices and sketches and making up new lyrics to songs like Weird Al Yankovic. And, you know, all that stuff was enough for me to keep on this path. And then I found theater in middle school and did a few things there. And then getting into high school, 
that was now another level of really solidifying it. And then community theater outside of that. But yeah, I knew, I knew that. When that lady came up to you and said, you got it, kid. Did you believe you had it at that time? Or was that like, was it about time somebody else came up and then recognized I mean, it, offered to help me? Kind of. I mean, the, <laughs> truth, the truth is, I always knew, like I said, like at six, I knew. I knew that I knew. I can't explain it. I, I just knew. You knew you were good, too. You knew it wasn't just like a hobby well, or something. No, 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 no. At six, I didn't know I was any good. I mean, at six, I was having plenty of, you know, family or family friends or whatever indulge me when I would be silly and, and do these things. And so maybe in my little kid head, I had an inflated idea of just how funny I was because people were being kind. But by the time I got to February of 1999, doing this play in Ojai and this wonderful woman, Maria Comfort, who was this retired manager, and she came out to me, I was 18. And yeah, and she says, you've got it, kid. And I, and I want to help you. Now, at that point, I had been doing theater for, you know, a good bit, you know, again, all through middle school, all through high school. And all through all that time, I had quite a few people, not necessarily professionals, although some were professionals in the industry or had been actors or whatever. But I had many people. God used a lot of different voices in my life to keep encouraging me along the path. Not so much my parents, not that my parents didn't think I had a talent, but they were caught up in their own stuff. If my mom and stepdad were healthier people and like weren't constantly like wrapped up in whatever all that drama was and had more time and bandwidth to really give to us kids and encourage us in our own, you know, endeavors, I think my mom would have seen it and believed in it way earlier and would have said, well, let's figure this out. I mean, you love this like other kids don't love this. And you keep getting cast in lead roles of all these things. And other people keep coming to you, directors or parents of other kids that would come up to me after shows. And they would very, I mean, and, and, and I know it was God because it wasn't just some comment aside. If there'd be parents that would seek me out and they would say, hey, don't ever stop doing this. Like, don't ever stop doing this. You have got to do this. You know, it was those things that honestly, that, that kept me buoyed because there were plenty of times either between the chaos at home or as I got older and feeling like, you know, was I'm am I 18 and I'm like, why are these doors not opening? Because I, I was doing this theater in Ojai and Ojai, California is this really artsy fartsy little town with lots of people who work in Hollywood. And I knew some of them and they and they would see the shows I was in and they would be very complimentary. And yet doors weren't opening. I was like, what is going on? So I knew, I mean, I knew for years that I had a, a knack for it, a talent for it, a, an it for it. And I knew deep down in my heart in the same way that I knew I was supposed to do it. I knew that I had the, the right stuff for it, but that could still amount to a hell of a lot of nothing. If those breaks don't happen, if those little women like Maria, you know, don't come up to you at a foyer out of nowhere when there's 30 people in the audience some night and go out of their way to say, I want to help you achieve what you deserve to achieve because what you have is a talent that other people should see. And it's something that you do well and you should continue to go and do well and get better at. So that's, yeah, that's kind of how all that journeyed. How did getting the less than perfect gig which was your first sort of major television gig. Yeah. How did that affect your mental state one way or the other? Did it make you feel more 
fulfilled inside or were you still kind of battling whatever was going on inside? Talk about that because I think well, people have this idea that, oh, you know, once you get successful, then everything changes. And how was that for you? Well, I mean, I was 21. Prior to that, so I started auditioning, like Maria introduced me to a manager who got me to a casting director who, I mean, really, I mean, the manager didn't even do that work. It was the manager I was with at the time was setting up my headshots, but I had no resume. I had no credits. I had no nothing. So my resume or my, my headshot just kept ending up in these boxes, these the unknown boxes. And this random casting director pulled me, was casting something and randomly pulled, pulled my headshot out and saw me for an audition and turned the camera off and was like, you know, who are you and what are you doing here? And how have I never met you before? And I kind of explained all that stuff about doing theater and whatnot. And then she got me to an agent who was, I mean, I think one of the best agencies in Hollywood endeavor before they merged with William Morris. This was, you know, back in, in 1999. I mean, this all happened in 99. So in 1999, I was assigned with his agents. I'm now 19. I'm going on legitimate auditions, but I'm still living in my parents' place in Ventura. And I'm working at a car wash and I'm bussing tables at restaurants and scraping by. And within a year, I had booked a pilot for a TV show, which was next level elation. But, you know, the pilots are interesting because you're right at the, like, oh my gosh, we maybe we're going to do it. But the pilot is just a pilot until it gets picked up and turned into a television show. Well, that pilot didn't get picked up. And then I was right back to bussing tables and washing cars and auditioning my butt off. But, you know, nothing was really going. And then a year goes by and I booked another pilot. I'm like, oh my God, this is the one. And then that doesn't get picked up. And I'm back to the grinding and grinding and grinding. And I almost gave up, by the way, which is in hindsight, so silly because even to book a pilot and the success I was having was actually quite successful for a brand new kid to the scene. Like most people are, don't have that level of agent when they're starting. They're pounding the pavement every day. They're barely getting commercial auditions. And I was auditioning for full-on feature films and leads in television shows. And I was testing all the time and I was actually booking pilots. But because the two of them didn't get picked up and because I wasn't booking a lot of jobs in between really at all, I thought, well, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I'm wasting my time and I'm wasting God's time. I'm wasting the universe's time. So I remember having this real heart to heart with God one night in my car. I'm like, I need you to show me that I'm not wasting my time because I, or, or your time, because I, if I need to be doing something else, if I need to go back and go back to school and figure something out, if I need to go be something else and do something else to serve this world, then let me go do that. And I shit you not, on the heels of that time, of that prayer time, I booked this job. It was this cable movie that was on FX. So it was, that was the first thing I ever did that actually like saw the light of day and people saw. And I remember we had a whole viewing party at my parents' place and it was a whole deal. You know, it was a small part in it, but, but nonetheless. And that was enough to buoy me through till the next pilot season. And the next pilot season, the third one was when I got Less Than Perfect and Less Than Perfect got picked up. So I put all that context there to say, I'm now 21. I've booked this pilot. The pilot is picked up. I know we're going to go do at least 13 episodes of a TV show that I am one of the leads on. And I was just washing cars and busting tables. And now I'm quite literally experiencing the first real, real powerful taste of this dream I've had since I was four years old, essentially. So I was on cloud nine. 
it was wonderful. It felt great for my mental and emotional well-being. But I also was totally unaware at 21 of just how much damage and trauma was sitting in me. So, of course, it felt great. You know, at 21, a lot of that stuff hasn't really manifested yet. You're still kind of in this clueless time. I wish to God that anyone in my life, I wish I had anybody between, you know, 20 and 25, grab me by the scruff of the neck and throw me into therapy when I didn't think I needed it and tell me, oh, you you do need it. You have no idea how much you need it. And you're going to go talk to a therapist and you're going to work through stuff and you're going to figure out, oh my God, wow, I had no idea these things were brewing. But at that point, I had no idea the deeper things that were going on internally. And all I knew was externally, I was very much succeeding in a way that very, very, very few people even get the opportunity to attempt to succeed at. So I was beyond stoked. Yeah. Behind the scenes, this is the period where it looked like the relationship between your mom started to go off the rails in a major way. Yeah, because all of a sudden now, I went from being her son who was struggling to break into the business, at which point she was already in my ear, I should be your manager. I should be your agent. You know, I worked with ZZ Top. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, man. I work with ZZ Top, she would say. Yeah, I mean, you know, because even though I wasn't quite broken into the business yet, I was still auditioning for legit stuff. So I think she started to kind of see the writing on the wall a little bit. And again, as a woman who did not feel purpose, did not feel worth, did not feel identity of her own in her life, this was the way that she could get in. And it was far more attractive than what my sisters were doing, which was still going to school if you're my younger sister. And if you're my older sister, she was either, you know, bartending or waitressing or maybe maybe managing a restaurant or a bar, or, you know, but I was maybe going to, you know, I'm doing Hollywood. Hey, Hollywood. So it's like, that's a really cool, attractive thing that my mom might be able to kind of get her way into and then have this purpose, you know? And then all of a sudden I got the job and now she wants to be a part of it. And she doesn't even, I don't even think my mom really knew that she was doing these things. Honestly, I, I think that so much of this stuff is subconscious, but I got the show. We're doing the show. It's got a live studio audience, like most multi-camera sitcoms do. And of course I want my friends and family all to come down to all the tapings and see it. It's so much fun. And I told my parents, I told my mom, I told my, like, Hey, you stay up in the audience. I'll come find you. I'll come say hi at the end of the show. Well, I'll go have dinner and drinks afterward, but you know, you guys stay up there. I got to do my job. Everyone abided by this rule, except for my mom, because my mom couldn't bear not being down in it. She had to be a part of it. She had to have some of it for herself because she didn't have anything in her own life that was giving her that. She couldn't just chill. I always likened it to like, I told my mom ever since I was a kid, I can't wait to be successful and buy you a house and do all of the, I, and I meant it. I wanted to, I loved my mom so much. And I just needed her to chill the fuck out and ride in the back seat of the car. Take the ride. You don't have to do anything anymore, mom. You don't have to navigate. You don't have to drive. You just get to enjoy, just sit back there and enjoy the ride. But my mom was, I mean, backseat driving wasn't enough for her. She had to barrel up there and get in my, give it up. I need the, I need to be up here. I need to be doing this. I'm your mother. I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. That kind of stuff. And 
It just wasn't enough for her. She had to get in there. And in doing so was insanely impairing our relationship because I'm a young adult trying to be taken seriously at work with a bunch of other adults. All of them were older than me. Everyone in the cast was older than me. Every one of my bosses was older than me. I'm the baby here. I'm I'm trying to step into being a man. And my mom would be down on the floor regaling the writers with all of these embarrassing stories, like how I wet the bed until I was in sixth grade and garbage like that. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? What are you doing? And why are you doing it? And I knew why she was doing it. She was doing it just so she could get her way in there, just weasel her way in there. So then she could be friends with the writers and the producers. And then maybe she would then start to work her manipulative magic and be like, you know, I wonder, I mean, I, I, you know, I, 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 who knows what, pitch she would have had. Oh, you know, I've, I've done some acting in my day, just trying to somehow find again, but in the pursuit of finding purpose, which there's nothing wrong with that. It's just how you go about it. And my mom went about it so wrong, so long. So yeah. And this right around then, right when I started that show, it was when I had to put the brakes on really, because my mom would literally be calling me daily in my dressing room and berating me, calling me a bastard, saying I don't love her because I didn't want her to be my agent or my manager or because I didn't want her to come down on the floor and be hanging out with my writers. And she couldn't handle that. And so she would in in her way of then not feeling not loved, which was not me not loving her, but that's what she felt. So she had to attack back. And now I'm in tears in my dressing room moments before I got to go down and make funny for all the people. I was like, this is not a healthy thing. I can't, I cannot abide. This will not work. And so I had to say, Hey, no more until, until you can speak to me in a way that's not this abusive and toxic, we won't have a relationship. And that was basically the beginning of what would then end up being a 13 year non-relationship. And then 13 years later, she, she passed. You went into great detail in the book and it all culminates at this intervention that, <laughs> that your mom has for you, which shows that she could also manipulate everyone else as well to get on her side. And then that's when you eventually had to cut her off. So talk a little bit about your journey. Again, I want to focus on the mental health aspects of being an actor in Hollywood, relatively successful, steadily working. And then also managing the other things that you wanted to achieve in your life, such as being married, you know, having successful relationships. What was going on in terms of that over that decade that you were now an actor and kind of had this dodgy relationship with your mom, but close relationship with your sisters? You know, the truth is over that decade, you know, a few years after I cut off relationship with my mom, I was 23 you know, nearly 24. And I started dating who would end up becoming my ex-wife. We met early on fireworks, you know, wow. Just everything. So incredible. Both wanted to get married young, thought it was going to happen. It all fell apart. I blamed myself. That definitely was the moment that I needed to go to therapy because I didn't realize that I was really just attracted to a version of my mom. I was Mm -hmm. doing exactly what Carl Jung talks about in spades. You know, this is psychology 101. And we both were on some level. If you're unhealthy, you are putting out your unhealthy vibes and you are attracting an unhealthy version of love to your life. But because that all fell apart and I blamed myself and I already didn't know at the time, but I didn't love myself. 
I went into this deep, 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 deep spiral depression. Again, also started having some suicidal ideation at that point. Was able to pull out of it mainly because I was working. So I still had some purpose that I, I had to get up. I had to get up out of bed and I had to go to work. I had people depending on me and I would get dopamine when I went to work because I was accomplishing, I was doing. And I didn't realize until actually, even after I went to all this life-saving therapy, that I think really one of the biggest reasons why I've even suffered with depression on the level I've suffered is because of my dopamine deficiencies that I've struggled with throughout my life, which is also what's led to various addictions, be it through substances or or like video games or sex or whatever. These are all ways in which you are trying to supplement your lack of dopamine. This is also psychology 101. Although things were only really starting to piece together right now. We were in a, such an incredible time in science where we're understanding how humans work, whether it's dopamine or serotonin or norepinephrine or, you know, pick your hormone. You know, these are all very important things and all directly relate to our mood and our ability to either be happy or not. So I was able to pull out of that tailspin, but I never worked on me. I didn't know that I, I didn't love me. So sex became a huge part of, whereas before it wasn't really that much of a factor, all of a sudden I basically just became kind of, I don't know, jaded to love. I thought if this woman who I thought was going to be my wife and was the perfect woman, if that's not going to happen, well, then I'm just going to go have fun and lose myself and all of that and feel better. And you do for a second. You feel better for roughly those few seconds of that elation where there's a girl that you fancy that you think is beautiful and that wants to give that to you. And you think, okay, well, then I must be, then I must have worth if they trust me and want to, to do this thing with. But if you don't love yourself, that just immediately wears off and you need more of it and you need more of it and you need more of it. So that was going on in my life. You know, my relationship with booze, my cigarettes. In high school, I, you know, screwed around with stuff like this a little bit, but then I actually kind of went pretty straight edge and was like wanting to be much more responsible about it. And then I was, you know, after all this, I was like, there was just, just definitely a kind of fuck it mentality. I was like, okay, well, if I tried so hard and I thought I was doing it all right, and this is the heartache that I'm left with, then fuck it. Then I'm just going to go live this other, you know, kind of life. Still being me, still loving people or trying to, you know, still trying to bring joy into the world, but not recognizing just how little to not at all that I loved myself. And so that all manifested in a lot of self-sabotage and self-destruction. Cigarettes, man, I smoked cigarettes for, at that point, I mean, I started in high school, I quit. And then once I picked them back up again, I mean, that was in 2004. And then I probably, you know, and I, I smoked all the way until I was 37. So that was, again, another 13 years at almost a pack a day. And thinking, no, because I like it. No, not just because I like it, but also because I get dopamine from it, because you do, and because I didn't love myself. None of this stuff I realized until I had a complete falling apart, which is, you know, what led to the book. But that didn't happen until I was 37. So all of this time, even while my mom, my mom died, and I still didn't come to terms with all of the things that were haunting me and hurting me and all that. And for another couple of years after that. So all this time from 22 to 37, that 15 years was me not knowing that I didn't love myself, 
and all the ways in which that manifested and me not being able to find love shocker, because if you don't love yourself first, you're not going to find it from somebody else. You're just not, not a healthy version of it. Anyway, me not stepping into all of the bits of my career that I wanted to, because also shocker, if you don't love yourself, you're not going to have the confidence to really put yourself out there and stay on that and know that little failures are okay. In fact, even big failures are okay. They don't define you. You learn from those things. If you don't have any real self-confidence, like real self-love, you're terrified to fail because that failure is now telling you you're really worthless. You really don't have what it takes. You really are a piece of shit. So you don't have the courage to go step out there and do the things that are necessary to bring about manifesting those larger, bigger things in your life. And it just progressively got worse. That's ultimately what it was. I was continuing to work. And I would continue to keep achieving things. God continued to bless me. I continued to get to do really amazing things, but it was still not ultimately adding up to the career that I knew that I was supposed to be living and doing the life that I was supposed to be living. And I couldn't figure out why until ultimately I had a complete mental breakdown and went to therapy at 37 and realized that that was the biggest part of the formula. I did not love myself. I barely liked myself. Before we get to that part, there's two things I would love to talk about. One being the enabling conversations. I think that's, you know, when you're taking care of your parents or when your parents are putting that kind of pressure on the child as you were experiencing and you had to get to that point where you said, you know what, I I can't, I can't do this anymore. And you weren't even going to pay for anything anymore. And your sister begged you, please, please, please. Mm. You broke down, but you really shut off all contact. I want to talk about what was your arc in that experience? And then also in your professional life, you were becoming increasingly more jaded about what Hollywood really represents, this sort of dehumanization of, you know, how they treat people and, and how that played a role in you wanting to get out of LA. So if you could just touch on those couple of things and then we'll get to the rehab. Well, with my mom, you know, early on in my life, I came to the realization that, and not even just through examples in my own life, but just looking at this life in general and what other people go through, I knew the difference between helping and enabling. And unfortunately, a lot of people will be enablers their whole life because they're so afraid of being considered a bad guy. I think that people think that unconditional love means that you can't ever say no to someone's plea, to their needs, you know, which is why a lot of parents particularly find themselves with with children who are, you know, making horrible decisions in their life, blowing through money, getting fired from jobs, whatever it is. And they're constantly coming back to the well and they're like, hey, mom, dad, I need money. And and these parents are stuck because they're like, "I, I need to unconditionally love my child. Mm-hmm. So I guess that means I have to keep paying because if I don't, then I don't, then I don't love them. And they still haven't gotten through. And by the way, and same with, you know, kids to their parents. In my case, it was that with my mom, right? My, my mom would make horrible financial decisions. And then she would constantly come back to me and be like, I need money. I need money. Now you could say, you, I, you know, people in their minds would say, well, that, you know, if there's no conditions on love, it's unconditional, then I have to go help this person. Well, sure. Except that you have to ask yourself, is that actually helping them? 
And I think a lot of people haven't made that leap. They haven't gone from, oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. I'm actually, I'm actually doing the opposite of what I think I'm doing. I'm not actually helping them. I'm enabling them to continue in this really poor behavior. Now, I knew that a long time before. So when it came to my mom, I was always very mindful of what it was she was asking for and what it was I was doing in order to help her. And that led to a lot of extra drama in my life because my mom, I wouldn't give her what she wanted. And then that would just spawn more hateful voicemails and things and her saying horrible things about me to anyone that would listen to her wherever she would go in oftentimes her drunken, you know, kind of stupors. But with my mom and the situation that she was in, you know, at first it was a little easier because she was with my stepdad and that was their relationship, you know? Well, then my stepdad, after, as I talk about in the book, you know, I wouldn't help them early on, like, you know, 2002, 2003, they were burning through money that they didn't need to burn through. Then they were coming to me and asking me for money. I was like, no, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of what this is. And then I was the bastard horrible son, not a man, turning my back on my mom, all this stuff. And then cut to 10 years later or whatever, or whatever it was. No, not even 10. No, I guess it was five years later. And now my stepdad has left my mom and left her with no money, no home, but all of their furniture to put under no roof. You know, like the amount of hypocrisy and all that was just unbelievable. Now, and by the way, again, and I'm going to keep saying these things, my stepdad was doing the best he could. And my stepdad was super twisted by my mom. My mom was also twisted by my stepdad, but I do not believe him to be a bad, evil, horrible person. He was surviving, honestly. And unfortunately, his survival was very toxic for my existence. But so 2007 rolls around and now he's gone. And now my mom shows up at my door with a U-Haul parked across the street. And now I am the essentially responsible party for the survival of my mom, who has been bad mouthing me for years. <laughs> Telling I'm you like, she wished you were dead. Oh my God. Like all of the things, all of the things. And so it was very difficult being stuck in the middle of their divorce and having a broker. Sh- I mean, it was insane. It was total insanity, but I was trying to find ways in which to figure that out and like, you know, get her a roof over her head. Obviously I didn't want my mom out on the streets. I didn't want my, you know, I needed my, she, she needed food in her belly, like whatever the norm, the, the regular things were, but I wasn't going to be giving her extra money so she could blow it on shopping. Baby clothes. Yeah, exactly. The fucking baby clothes. Oh my God. <laughs> Like, and it needed to have some rules and, and regulation to it. But then, you know, eventually she would just keep screwing up and she would keep doing things over and over and over again, including all of this mail fraud and, and, and impersonating her sister when she got arrested for a DUI and having to go to rehab and then come to me. And I'm like, what is going on? Okay, fine. I will help send you to this better, more expensive rehab. But this is it. This is the Alamo. If you if you go up there and you fuck off, then I'm done with I'm not going to help you out anymore, mom. Like and and you need to be able to stick by your word as a human being, you know, and 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 more than that, you need to be able to stick by your word with people who are so willing and able to just push right through your boundaries and take advantage all the time. Because if you don't, they know they're always able to do that when they want to. And so sure enough, she goes up to this rehab. She fucks off. She doesn't do the work. She basically gets kicked out. And I say, okay, well, we're done. And then her friend, her good friend, who 
could have helped her keep a roof over her head. She had the extra room, but her friend was like, no, but you know, we need the rent money. I'm like, all right, well, you need to go find it somewhere else. Well, you're just going to let your mom get kicked out. I was like, well, you're the one kicking her out. I don't know. You tell me. She's like, oh no, but I realized it's my parents' house. And I don't know. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I had a deal with my mom. She broke the deal. This is it. And then we're coming down on D-Day and the reality is still there. She's going to get kicked out. Everyone in my family's freaking out. What's going on, Zach? You got to help. And of course, because I'm the guy, I'm the actor who's making good money on TV. Of course, I should be just peeling off cash to go feed my mom's problems. And nobody could sway me except for my younger sister, who has always had the most sway over me emotionally because I love her so much. I love both of my sisters, but you know, my younger sister and I've always had a, I guess, a slightly tighter, more special bond. We're just closer. I don't know. We just are more like Irish twins. And she's living with me at the time, being my assistant, and she is breaking down, crying her eyes out. Zach, you can't let mom be homeless. Zach, you can't let mom be homeless. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. And so I buckled and I said, fine, I will pay for her rent and I will pay for her food and I will pay, I will pay for her vitamins. I will make sure that she is in the safest, healthiest place that she can be. But that is it. And, and the deal was she, my sister, had to go and be checking on her on the regular to make sure that things were progressing in a more positive manner. But as I was afraid would happen, all of that just ultimately led to her devolving more because she never really hit bottom, like bottom, bottom. And I think that that's where a lot of us need to go. I mean, hell, I did. I didn't hit bottom, bottom and that I became homeless, but I hit bottom, bottom and that I did not want to live anymore. And I almost I almost made that a reality. I'm so grateful that I didn't. Oh, my God. <laughs> I look back on the last five years of my life. And all the wonderful things that I've gotten to do and see and experience and the people that I've gotten to live alongside with and what a waste that would have been. All of these things that I never would have been able to do and experience and memories that I would have had with my nephews had I chose to use a a permanent solution to a temporary problem, as they say. But my mom never did hit that bottom. Not until I, I guess at the end of her life, you know, when she was just spiraling so far down with so much shame and regret and drinking, just binge drinking so much that she, she would try to eat food and just puke it all up. And I mean, you know, just, and died by herself on her bathroom floor in the middle of the night. It's just one of the saddest. It's just so sad. What a waste of, of, of such a brilliant mind and dynamic woman, you know, at the end of the day, but that, that was a really gnarly, gnarly time because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to help my mom. And I wanted to, I wanted to help my mom. But as far as I could tell, the only thing that was really going to help her is if she realized just how bad she had gotten and nothing was getting her there. No amount of people cutting off relationships with her was getting her there. So that's why. And even in the book, I, I, I say, I wonder if perhaps maybe, maybe if my aunt would have gone another direction and said, no, I am going to press charges and you are going to go to jail. And if the, maybe that, maybe, who knows, but I, you know, and then, sorry, wait, what was the other half of that? You were talking about how, 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 how Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah. 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 You know, and that was, that was going on the whole time. It got progressively worse. When my mom and stepped in again, the timing, of all these things, it's so insane, but you know, I work on a less than perfect, there was definitely some Hollywood nonsense and things and ways that were inhumane 
that I was at the brunt end of, but nothing compared to once my mom showed up on my doorstep, which was when I started doing Chuck, this TV show, Chuck 2007. So all of a sudden now I'm having to handle all that. And I'm handling being the lead. Now the lead lead of a hour long show which, you know, with a multi-camera sitcom, you rehearse very casually most all week long. And then you have one night where you shoot and it's a lot of fun. And then you have like, you have you work for three weeks and you have a whole week off. With a show like Chuck, I was the titular character. I'm working all day, every day. The first season, 16 hour days. Including Friday days. Friday days, exactly. I mean, it was, talk about poor mental health you can't even prepare yourself for that. And right. I'm diving into this work. I'm finding purpose in, in it and dopamine and all these things in it, but simultaneously feeling totally taken advantage of because I'm giving everything I have to the show. And when I'm not shooting, I'm going and doing all the press for the show. And over all this time, never really feeling like anybody gave a shit about who I was as a human being. They didn't care that the show was driving us all into the ground. Our sleep was all messed up. Our, we had no family life. We had no friend life. I mean, you know, these are all things that you need to balance your, your mental and emotional well-being. And on top of all that, year in and year out, we almost get canceled every single year. We're, it's always up in the air. And, and year in and year out, no matter how hard I worked, never once did the bosses ever say, you know what? Hey, good job. We're going to give you a raise. For all the hard work you've done, here's a never. In fact, they basically told me to go fuck myself. I mean, and I'm not even kidding, like in basically almost those words. And talk about feeling like you're just this useless piece of shit. Like you're giving everything you have. And the people that would hope you would think would hopefully see all that you're giving. I don't expect all the audiences to know all we're giving. I would expect the people who are running this whole fiasco to be like, yo, we're running him ragged. Like, let's give something to this kid. What are we, what can come on, you know? And so all of that mixed with everything else, my love life that had fallen apart and all of the unhealthiness there and all of the everything and my mom and the thing, like it was all just one thing on top of another that was just harder and harder. And that show ran until, you know, that was 2007 to 2012. And then when that stopped, then it was like, well, it, because we were never this massive, massive, massive hit. It's not like the phone was ringing off the hook of the Spielbergs being like, get us Zach Levi. We need to, you know, got to put him in the new movie. Like, no, I was getting a lot of offers to play the same kind of role, which I didn't want to do, you know, because that's how Hollywood works. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Get the guy who did the nerd on the thing with the. He had the powers and yeah, well, we got a new show. It's about this guy who's got powers, but it's not, you know, it's slightly different. He's this, that, or the other thing. I'm like, this is the same show. Like, I don't want to do, and I don't want to play the nerd anymore. And I don't want to be walking around, you know, stumbling into, you know, accidentally winning a moment with all this aw shucks and foot and mouth kind of stuff. Like I got to, I got to try and do other things, but that wasn't happening. I wasn't finding this other level. So all of that is playing on my mental health. All of that is playing on my self-worth. All while totally unbeknownst to me, I never loved myself anyway. So it's just taking more and more. Any little bit of what I might have liked about myself is just continuing to kind of slip away. And then that makes you more and more upset and unhappy with life, which can make you more difficult to work with. 
because then I would find myself working with bosses who I would see taking advantage of myself or other people in other situations. And I would not be quiet about it. I would not be happy about it. I would be quite the opposite. But then you're the squeaky wheel. You're the fly in the ointment. They don't want to work with people like that. And so then that would become something. But now I'm like, oh, damn. Well, now I'm not working with them. I'm not even getting jobs that I didn't want. Like, <laughs> wow. And all that, all that, all that, all that, all that, you know, was all building at the same time. When you got the call about your mom, were you complete with that relationship? Or did you feel like, man, I wish I, other than they, you know, maybe I shouldn't have enabled in the way that I did, but did you feel like, okay, um, or were you carrying that with you over those next years as you were getting into your, your own marriage and, and feeling increasingly dissatisfied with life in Los Angeles? I think at the time I felt that I, I was complete. Again, I always hoped and believed that maybe we would have some beautiful, amazing storybook, fairy tale reconciliation. I always hold, held out for that kind of hope. I always hold out for some kind of beautiful thing like that. Even then, I wasn't so jaded that I didn't think it was possible. But no, I mean, I, I thought I had made my peace. Like, if my mom dies, then she dies. And I, there's not much more I can say or do to help her understand what pain she's caused me and that I love her, but I can't do this. And when she died, I cried really hard for three days. And then there were no more tears. So, yeah, I thought I, I had resolved a lot of that. But then once I went to therapy and realized just how much I hadn't resolved and how much I mourned her again. And still, you know, even now, right now, you know, imagining her on the bathroom floor. But I feel at peace with where I know my mom is in the most beautiful place. Wherever we all go back to, you know, like Ram Das says, we're all just walking each other home. And I'm so grateful that she's not tortured anymore and that she's not torturing everybody else along with her. But I'm sad about the missed opportunity of what she could have done in this world, who she <clears> could have been in this world if she would have just loved herself. But that's also, you know, I think why I am so adamant about having these conversations now. because. I didn't know how to love myself because my mom didn't know how to love herself. And, and I'm not alone. So many of us struggle with this exact thing. And I don't want anyone to leave this world without knowing what it means to love themselves and all that can come from their life and through their life. If they do all of the amazing things, the, the, the ways in which we can be conduits of that love and that light and that life. If we can, but we have to start here. We've got to start here. So had my mom never gone through what she went through and I never went through what I went through, that I wouldn't have this redemption of it. I wouldn't have this story to have gone through, this journey to have gone through, to then try to redeem it and go and just keep talking about it because we need to. But at the moment, I thought I was good. In therapy, I realized that I wasn't, and I've done a lot more healing and a lot more forgiveness and a lot more letting go and a lot more just, and it's also helped me to forgive so many other people, so many other things, because I can't, you can't help it. You can't help, but no matter, some asshole who cut you off on the freeway, some boss that takes advantage of you, some, you know, lover who cheats on whatever, I don't know, you know, every single person, the yuck yucks, politicians that are running our country into the ground, all of them. Every single time I start going to a place of like, 
ah, I have to come back to, and I have to come back to wait, 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 wait. But there is a five-year-old child in there that was dealt some shit hand in some way throughout their life. And however they've come up and whatever system they came up in has created who they are right now. And radically accepting that that is the reality and radically forgiving because there is no other choice and radically loving because that is the choice. That is the thing. And that doesn't mean no boundaries. That doesn't mean you even have to like them. It just means you have to recognize that they did their best. Mm. And it doesn't make sense sometimes what it is. So I want to honor your time. We're going to have to wrap this up, but I I do want to talk about the suicidal ideation. And and I guess you were thinking about jumping off of a building or something like that. And, you know, every now and again, you'll hear about some celebrity, you know, taking their life. And since you've been through that yourself, I'm just curious, is there anything anyone could say or do for you? Not a professional, just a friend, relative. Is there something someone could say or do to help you when you were in that situation? Or no. In that particular case, so basically my marriage that I never should have gotten into was very, very unhealthy and a really dark time. And I had ideations during that time. But then now cut to I am in Toronto about to start shooting a limited series up there, a city that I only knew because of my ex-wife. And I get an email from my ex-wife that says, I'm filing for divorce. And in that moment, I felt the entire world collapsing on me because I couldn't even do that right. My career wasn't what I wanted it to be. My family life was horrible. My, you know, all these things, but now I've failed this and everyone's going to know and everyone's going to judge me. And I was rapidly falling apart could not stop crying, weeping, weeping, weeping. I mean, and and felt no love for myself at all and didn't think I was ever going to come out of it. And so, yeah, I walked to the balcony. I was staying in this like hotel apartment kind of situation up on the 14th floor or something. And I walked to the balcony and I looked down. I don't know if you've ever cried so hard that like the tears don't even move out of your eyes fast enough. Like you're almost like you're looking through water and I'm looking down through this blurry eyes. And I'm just looking down at all these cars that are parked down there. And I think to myself, is this far enough to die? Like, am I high enough where I would actually die? Or if I jump right now, is there a chance that I live, but I'm like paralyzed or mangled or whatever. And I couldn't abide that. I was like, then (laughs) then I'm failing, even killing myself. And the idea of living for the rest of my life, uh, handicapped or unable to like any, like I I would just, I would be in so much more misery. And so I go inside and I go to the kitchen and I go to the knife block and I picked a knife up out of the knife block and I put it up to my wrist. And I was asking myself, okay, I think I've heard that you don't go crossways because then they can fix, if they find you, they can fix it better. So you got to go long way, but I don't know where it is in relation to my tendons. And if I don't do it right now, I'm cutting my tendons and then I'll maybe screw that up. 
So again, through these blurry eyes, I'm like, I, I don't know. And I put the knife back and thank God called or was texting with a couple of my best friends and was telling them what was going on. And one of them got on a flight and they came up to Toronto and they stayed with me for a couple of days and they spoke just enough truth and wisdom and love into me that was able to kind of get me over that moment. And then I was again, back into work and we were shooting and I had some purpose. I had something to just keep me going and got through that most difficult time. Then fast forward to when I had my mental breakdown and I'm here in Austin and I, again, the darkness is consuming me. There wasn't really anything that anybody could say or do seemingly other than you're not seeing correctly. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. This too shall pass. You know, these type, these types of things and me going to therapy and recognizing why I was in the state that I was in. But from an advice standpoint, if anybody out there is, is dealing with this type of level of depression, or you know someone who's dealing with this level of depression, obviously one of the most important things is to not go to someone and say, cheer up, like it's going to be okay. Because that's not reality in the depressed person's head. It's not going to be okay. You haven't done the math. I've done the math. I've seen how my life plays out from this point forward. It's not redeemable. It's not good. It's nothing but misery. There's nothing to cheer up about. The thing that people in that state need to hear is it's okay to feel what you're feeling, but you have to recognize that your feelings affect the way that you think. So let's just say for now, maybe you're wrong. Maybe it gets better. But regardless, I'm with you right here, right now. I'm with you right here, right now, and I love you. And let them know how much them taking their own life would affect you and everyone else in their life. Because that was the thing that really saved mine. And it wasn't because anybody told me. I knew that. I've seen enough people talk about things like this. How the, you know the, Those who kill themselves, how selfish it is because you don't realize how, how much damage you leave in your wake. But the truth is, I was already going through that. I was thinking about my sisters and I'd kind of come to terms and made peace with the idea that I, you know, they might be really fucked up for a little while, but they'll get over it. But it was my nephew, my brand new little one-year-old nephew and re realizing that if I hurt my sister that bad, that he would grow up with half a mom or some, maybe not half, but a, you know, a, a, not a full mom, not for a lot of his formative years, she would be in a way messed up state. And I, I couldn't bear that. I couldn't bear this little life that has nothing but opportunity ahead of him ending up in a place like me because he didn't have a mom that, that could really be there for him to love him, to show him that love, to model that love because she was so still caught up with and in turmoil because of her brother who she loved not being able to make it through. So I think that, I think, I think if anything, that is what, People like myself need, need to be reminded of in those moments. You know, if you, if you know someone who's going through that kind of depression, they need love. They need love, love, love. They are clearly not loving themselves, mm -hmm. which is why I think this is the most important thing we need to be talking about and kind of really at the crux of so much of our anxiety, our depression, or, you know, you name it. Because if you're really loving yourself, you're not feeling those pressures. You're not feeling like the, the pressure of life and failing it.
If you love yourself, you're not feeling like you're failing life. If you love yourself, you're not feeling like that's too much. And again, you know, I'm not, maybe some people can still live in those in kind of a dual place. But by and large, if you're really loving yourself, really accepting yourself, really being patient with yourself and kind with yourself, that is the beginning of all of the beautiful healing. That is where you can look at all that darkness and say, get the fuck away from me. These are lies from the pit of hell that just get keep getting whispered. You're nothing. You're an idiot. You're a failure. Just end it. And our brains are really good at doing that. Our brains are incredible at giving those lies that little purchase, that little, that little foothold, because we're already believing it. We're already believing it about ourselves that we deserve to die. We just with our life is a failure. So then when the darkness comes, you just want to, if anything, it always makes you feel less crazy because it's what you already believe. These people over here don't understand it. They're like, what? Look at all the things that you have. Look at, I mean, Twitch, I haven't posted anything about it yet. And I, maybe I, I won't, I don't know. You know, I, it's really weird when people die, whether by suicide or otherwise, you know, I think there's something really amazing about our ability to be able to use social media and kind of remember them and memorialize them. But sometimes it's just kind of like, what do you even say? I was on Joe Rogan's podcast not too long ago. And he looked at me and he was like, how could, like, you know, you're the successful, good looking guy. Like, why would you be struggling with this? To which I said, listen, I appreciate the compliments, but that has nothing to do with what's going on in your head. That's nothing to do with it. I don't see that. I don't see it the way other people might see that. I see all the ways that I'm ugly. I see all the ways that I'm a failure. I see all the ways that I would have, should have, could have. And Twitch, who was such a lovely guy and such a, for all intents and purposes, a joyous person who brought joy to other people. Clearly, clearly there was something going on in his heart and his mind where he did not see that. And he did not feel that. And he needed love. He needed love in a, in a, in a way that perhaps he couldn't even express or explain. And I think that, you know, maybe as men, particularly, we need to get a lot better at that. Women have come up in, the, in a society that fosters that a lot more, that encourages that a lot more, that allows for it a lot more. And as guys, we're only now coming to these places where it's like, no, no, it's okay to show those emotions. And I wish Twitch, I wish she, I wish she had. I wish he had. Radical love. <laughs> Radical love. And on one hand, I am grateful that you went through everything you went through because now we have this beautiful book to live beyond you and me and and help people generations from now to be able to understand some of these things that they're experiencing. And we didn't even go into the healing process with Beth and all of that, which is really mm. remarkable as well. But people will just have to get the book and read it. And I just want to yeah. acknowledge you, man, for being so open and transparent right now. And I think I really do believe that your film career and all the wonderful things you've done in entertainment is really just, just a platform for you to have more of these conversations with people and that God is very much using you in that, in that regard. And thank you so much for your work with Active Minds and just everything you're doing. And I feel like you're just getting started. So looking forward to sharing this with the people. And hopefully you and I will get a chance to have more conversations in the future. You'll have to write more books. I would love that, man. <laughs> I, would love that. I would love that. I'm, and, I'm honored uh, that you asked me to come be on your podcast and talk about these things. 
and like I told you, you know, when we first started talking on, uh, you know, messaging on, on Instagram, I, mm-hmm. I, I so appreciate you. I so appreciate the literal lights <laughs> that, that you bring to the world and the encouragement, because the, this is the way we redeem social media. It's so insane that it is both one of the leading causes of mental illness right now, and also the largest platform we've ever had to share mental health awareness and resources and everything. And if we can keep going, doing that and and pointing people back toward love and loving themselves and loving each other. And I think it can, the whole thing can be so redeemed and I appreciate you. I appreciate the messaging that you put out into the world. So thank you for being you. Thank you for all that you're doing and thank you for letting me come and unpack some of these things with you. (laughs) Absolutely, brother. Thank you so much. And hope to see you in person very soon. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Zachary Levi. His book, Radical Love, is available everywhere books are sold. Also, make sure to check out his social media. He's a prolific poster, and you'll find him at at Zachary Levi. So that's Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y-L-E-V-I. I also highly recommend checking out American Underdog. It's one of those films that'll have you shedding a tear or two. Let's just put it that way. I saw it on an airplane and I couldn't hold back the tears either. And of course, I'll drop links to everything else that Zachary and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. If this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, hope you enjoyed it. We have an incredible archive of past interviews with other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose. People such as filmmaker Ava DuVernay and internet poet sensation Young Pueblo and motivational speaker Ed Milet and author Stephen Pressfield and Saul Williams and Adrian Mishler of Yoga with Adrian and so many more. You can also search interviews by subject matter in case you want to hear more episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges. You can get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com show. You can also watch these interviews on my YouTube channel. If you want to put a face to a story, just search Light Watkins podcast and you'll see the whole playlist. And I also post the raw, unedited version of every podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you want to hear all of the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat at the beginning of the episode, you can listen to all of that by joining my online community, which is at thehappinessinsiders.com. Not only will you have access to those unedited podcasts, but you'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge along with other challenges and master classes for becoming the best version of you. And then finally, to help me bring you the best guests possible, it would help a lot if you can take 10 seconds to just rate the podcast. All you do is glance at your device screen right now, click on the name of the podcast, scroll down past the seven or so previous episodes, You'll see the blank stars. If you really like this episode, tap the star all the way on the right. And that's how you leave a five-star rating. If you want to go the extra mile and leave a review by maybe suggesting one episode that you recommend a new listener should start with, then that would be appreciated as well. Thank you in advance for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. 
And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith on your end of things. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.